Good morning. Great to be with you guys this morning. We've, uh, I've had the privilege of being a part of the Watermark Gospel from the beginning. And uh, one of the additional things that it does when, when you get to see all of these stories and you realize, oh my goodness, you know, these, these stories were written over, what, 14 to 1600 years. They're written by 40-ish different authors, and they all have the same pattern. How does that happen if God is not speaking through these authors? If this isn't a a book that is put together by a superintending mind. And so it it strengthens uh, your understanding of the Bible, but it also strengthens your confidence in the Bible. So I just throw that out there as one additional benefit to to checking out the videos. And Dr. Gage is actually here today, so he's sort of sitting back there. I'm not going to totally call him out, but if I was, he's right back there um, with his wife. And if you've got, yeah, he's awesome. He's awesome. He is awesome. Uh, seriously, like that man's teachings have changed me completely uh, from beginning to end, and I'm, I'm super grateful for him, and, and I'm grateful for you guys. So welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you to those of you who are joining us online today. We know that you are out there, and, and we are grateful for that. Uh, a couple of years ago, and I think I shared this at the time, I had a friend of mine send me an article, and the title to the article <laughs> is amazing. It's, Why Are Rich People So Mean? That's the title. And, and so, like, it came with an email, and the email, and I just say this in case you Google it, okay? So, same warning to you. The, the friend of mine said, listen, you know, it's got some language in it that you're not going to appreciate. Just look past the language. Read the article. It's brilliant. And I read the article, and I think it is pretty brilliant. And I think the title, by the way, is where the brilliant starts. And the reason that I say that is because here's what happens. We hear that title, and what do we do? We think about people who have more than us, and we think, yeah, what's their problem? I'm going to read this article, you know? Like, we're not rich. Wait a minute. What is the median household income for Broward County? You know what it is? $59,547. That means every wage earner in your house, cumulatively, over a year, middle ground, Broward County, $59,547. Feeling wealthy yet? One no. But I do appreciate that. Median per capita income, $32,909. Now listen, there are folks below that here for sure. But it sort of resizes what wealthy is. Jesus is going to talk to all of us, not just those people. It's an interesting article. So in the article, they did all these studies, and then they cited all these studies. So one of the studies they did, they did it four-way stops. So you got four cars coming in four directions. Everybody has a stop sign. And let's be honest, that is a confusing arrangement for most of us, is it not? Like, I mean, you pull up, and it's like your brain freezes, and so does everyone else. And we all start looking at each other, like, who's going to go first? And you're like, you know, like, you're going, and the guy's going, no, you go. And so you start to go, and then he starts to go. And you're like, dude, what are you doing, you know? And then you're like, no, I'm not going to go. You go. And he's like, no, you go. And so you start to go, and he starts to go. That's when I get out of the car and go, I'm not leaving. You're going next. You're going to go. Meanwhile, these guys are like, what are you people doing? I've solved this dilemma. (laughs) And I don't, maybe this makes me mean, so it's possible, but I just appoint myself traffic cop. So I get there and I just take over. I'm like, you stay, you go. All right, you've gone. All right, you stay, you go. Okay, now you go. I go last. It's still faster. Just know that. But what they discovered is that people driving nicer, more expensive cars were four times as likely to pull up to the intersection and just go, the rest of you peasants will wait and shoot through than people who drove more modest vehicles. It's interesting. 
He's talking about the corrosive effects of wealth, like how wealth makes us a worse person, not better. So then they did this study with pedestrians. So they pretended to be a pedestrian who's trying to get across the road, obviously, at these intersections. And what they discovered is that 100% of the people who drove the modest vehicles, which makes me honestly wonder how long they did this. What do you do this for five minutes? I mean, how do you get 100%? Nobody gets that kind of score. But anyway... 100% of the people who drove the more modest vehicles pulled up to this light or the stop sign and they see the person wanting to get across. And they're like, no, 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 yeah, you go ahead. You go first, right? 46.2% of the people who drove nicer cars were like, stay there, cruising through. Listen, don't let, you know, I mean, if the shoe fits. They took a computer game and they rigged the computer game so you could not win the game. You can't win. Impossible. And they had wealthier people play it, and they had poor people play it. And then he asked everybody, hey, did you win the game? And these guys were like, yeah, I won. You know? <laughs> what do you mean you won? <laughs> it's not possible. It's interesting. This was my favorite. They took a jar of candy, and they put it, I think it was a doctor's office, and they put it up on the counter, and they put like a little sign on the jar of candy. It said, whatever candy is not eaten by our patients at the end of the day is donated to the school down the street who ate the candy. Fascinating. What about generosity? Not in terms of numbers of dollars given away, but in terms of percentage of income given away. Every time this study is held, the people who have less, percentage-wise, give away more than the people who have more. Why is that? Think about that. I mean, I think part of the reason for that is what I said at the beginning. We all tend to look up. You know, if you have 10 million, you look at the guy with 20, and you feel poor in comparison. You get to 20, you think you've arrived. No, no, no. Now you, now you need 50, and you still feel poor. And then it's 150, and you still feel poor. You get the idea. It's like no matter how much you get, you still feel poor. And as a result, you know, you're, you're still climbing the ladder going, someday I'll get to the place where I can be generous. And you don't. Fascinating. One of the things that we do with wealth is we seek to gain our security in it. In other words, we're looking for security in life, and we think, you know what, if I can just get enough of this, I'll be secure. Then you get that amount. You're like, that's not enough. So then i got to get this, and then you get that. You're like, I'm still not secure. And then you get this, and then you get, I'm still not secure. I'm not secure. I'm not secure. I'm not secure. And so then what do we do with regard to the commands of the Lord, and for that matter, the help of other people, the needs of the poor? We ignore them because we're not yet secure. And we say to ourselves, ah, at some point I'll be secure and then I'll help. We do the same thing with significance. We attach our self-worth to our net worth. And, and it's never enough. In this article, it was interesting. They, they came to a guy whose net worth was $10 million, okay? And here's what he said. He says, everyone around here looks at the people above them he says, you're a nobody here at $10 million. All right, so what is it that makes you a somebody then in his opinion? It's how much you have. That's where your value comes from. That's where your significance happens. And how much do you have to have? Because I think that if he got to 20, he'd need 50. If he got to 50, he'd need 150. I don't, I don't think he'd ever land the plane, even after he was wealthy enough to buy one. And what happens? 
then is when somebody comes and says, look, you know, we, we've got poor people in our community. We have this issue in our community. We have that issue in our community. Hey, here's the deal. Would you be willing to help us out financially? You know, I, you don't think it through this way, but what is that? It's an attack on that which you are trusting in for security. It's an attack. It's a threat to that in which you're looking to, to create value for you. And so what do we have to do? We have to develop the scar tissue psychologically necessary to ignore the commands of the Lord and to ignore people in need so that we can continue to build and we continue to grow and we continue to chase this thing that we're not going to find in dollars and cents. And I tell you all of that this morning because as we continue our study of the parables of Jesus, one of the things we discover is that lots of them involve money, including the one that we're going to look at today. And it's a story that we'll see is about a rich man who, to be honest, guys, I mean, if you're really like transparent about this, you're going to hear his story. And right up until the end and maybe even after, you're going to think, did this guy write a book? Like, is there a seminar that this guy has? Are there YouTube videos where this guy can tell me how to amass that because I want to be that guy? We are, most of us right now, trying to be him and thinking that if we were him, wow, we'd be, well, somebody. And yet it's a story in which Jesus is going to teach us that following Jesus means learning to trust in God, not in money, not in wealth, for our security and for our significance. And it's a story that's prefaced by a comment. So at the beginning of this chapter, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus makes it clear, or Luke does, that Jesus is talking to thousands of people. So it's a diverse group. He's talking to people who have a lot. He's talking to people who have a little. He's talking to people everywhere in between. And he makes the same comment to all of them, which means that all of us are subject to this particular issue. He says to them, beginning in Luke 12, verse 15, here's the prefatory statement. It says, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against what? All Let's say it. This is going to be fun. You ready? I'm going to say all, and you're going to say the word. Here we go. Ready? All? Yeah, it was not a lot of enthusiasm. All covetousness. What does that even mean? That word refers specifically to our desire to have more. And then when we get it to have more, and then when we get it to have more, and then when we get it to have more. Why? Because we're chasing something that we're never going to find in having more. Two things at least. Significance. Security. And I don't want you to miss the severity of this warning. And like Jesus says, okay, take care. And then it's as if he stops and says, you know, that's not strong enough. Let me add something to it. Be on your guard against thinking like that, against behaving like that, against living like that, against the pursuit of that. He's like, oh my goodness, listen, take care. Be on your guard against this stuff, Then, which implies, by the way, vigilance. He's like, be all about watching out and guarding against this. And I'm sorry, I'm a dog owner. I'm in love with my dog. And I am, when I think about her, or when I think about vigilance, I think about her because she is the most vigilant creature I've ever met. So for us, this is the dog, okay? She's saying, Dad, play tug of war with me and my squeaky toy, <laughs> which is a fool's errand, isn't it? I mean, bring me a rope. You know, this thing is slimy. I can't get a grip on this. This dog is 65 pounds of solid muscle and athleticism. And I don't know who created the squeaky toy as an aside, but they owe an apology to the whole of humanity. This just gives your animal the ability to terrorize you with noise. (laughs) For hours, I pray for that thing to get popped. But to us, this is the dog or, or this. This is the dog. Right? She saw that there was an inch between us. 
and she became a Luna ball. Her name is Luna. She just balls herself up. Or this next one, this is also our dog. You can tell that she has issues with modesty, right? Like this is, this is, there is nothing ladylike about this. But this is what I get. So I come home and she freaks out and throws a party, which is one of the great things about having a dog. They are always happy to see you. doesn't matter what else has gone on. And then she races around the house and then she jumps up on the couch and flips herself upside down. And then there's that until I come scratch her belly. But I just want to say that to every other living creature in the universe, she's this dog. Or this dog. Or this dog. Now, I want you to look that dog in the eyes. Because if you come on the property, that's the dog you'll meet. She is vigilant. She has a domain. She has a territory. And a bird can't fly by. And she's up. She's like, what's that? It's unbelievable. She's amazingly out of a dead sleep. She will wake up and let you have it. So funny, my wife, before we leave to go somewhere, she's like, I want to close all the blinds. I'm like, I want them to see that. Let them come to the door. You know? She's like, "Ah, maybe we left the door unlocked, or one of the kids, you know, they leave the door unlocked. I'm like, so what? If somebody robs us, they're going to call the police on themselves. Rescue me from this dog. I don't care if I go to jail. She's amazing. Jesus has got a message for you, and here it is. You have a domain to protect. You know what it is? It's your heart. And here's what he's saying. You better put that face on when it comes to covetousness. Vigilant. Because covetousness is sneaky. It's not like the mailman. The mailman shows up at our house. That dog hears the mailman pull up at the street. She hears him walk all the way to the mailbox. Our mailbox is this metal thing by the front door. Honestly, like if you let the lid slam, you'll regret it. It's painful. It's so loud. Wham! Every day. It's like getting caught between two symbols. The mailman cannot sneak up on that beast. But what Jesus is saying is that covetousness, not only can, it will sneak up on you. Hey, you know what? Here's the deal. Let me prove it real quickly. Nobody here is yet concerned about this message. Not one person. We look at it because a covetous person, that's always somebody else. And it's always somebody else who has more. They're the covetous person. No, no, no. Then you get to their level. No, no, no. That guy, he's the covetous person. Oh, no, no. That woman, she's the covetous person. Yeah. It's always somebody else. It's always somebody else who has more. I'm not covetous, Tom. I'm, I'm just ambitious. I'm not covetous. I'm just, you know, I'm just driven. I'm not covetous. I'm just responsible. I'm just being, doesn't the Bible come and, and teach responsibility financially? Answer, yes. Doesn't the Bible come and say, I should be like the ant or the rock badger? I don't even know what a rock badger is. All I know is that the rock badger stores up in the spring and in the summer and so forth so that when the winter comes, time of deprivation, the rock badger and fam are going to make it through. Doesn't the Bible tell me to do that? That's exactly what I'm doing. No, no, no. What you're doing is you're storing enough for a thousand winters. It's different. It's different. It walks around very quietly. It takes off its shoes and it, it makes its way in. 
And before you know it, there it is. It's taken up its residence. Jesus is like, I'm going to give you a clue, like something to take care. He says, take care, be on your guard, be vigilant against all covetousness because it's so hard to see in yourself. And then he continues, and because one's life, he says, and and really more specifically, the significance of one's life and the security of one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Those things can only be found in God. And so then to make that point, Jesus then tells us a story. He says he told them and us a parable. And he says this, he says, the land, it's the most important word in the story. Land. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. So just to be clear, what is it that produced plentifully? Because it wasn't the rich man, and here's the deal. We want it to be the rich man because we understand intuitively that if it is, in fact, the rich man that produced plentifully, then the rich man can claim ownership of what he has plentifully produced, and then he can do whatever he wants with it, and that's what we want to be able to do. He takes it away from us by the way he tells the story. He says, no, 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 that's not the way that it works, actually. He says, the rich man, the land of the rich man produced plentifully. And in saying that, he's not denying you know, the rich man's contribution to the cause. He's not saying the guy didn't work hard, that he didn't buy the right field at the right price, that he didn't, unlike everyone else, you know, he imported some special seed that creates a plant that's immune to insects. You know, he, he created this advanced irrigation system like way ahead of his time. The rich man was a visionary. He was amazing. He's not denying anything that the rich man had to do to help produce this particular crop. He's just saying that in the end, when you look at it, and you really analyze it carefully, you realize that all the rich man did was work with what he was given. And that's all we ever do as well. I mean, if you just drop it down to the most basic elements, whatever your crop is, however great or small, whether you're above the median income level or below here in Broward County, it doesn't matter. Not to your value, it doesn't, and neither to your security. But you had to be alive to do it. I think we have to say that. So we'll put life on the table. I can't take credit for that. I've had to stay alive, and the Lord measures out every day. You know, i got to breathe in and out oxygen. That's been helpful. It's just been helpful. You and I, what have we used? We've used the intellect. Can we, can we, do we create that? We're, no, we didn't gift that to ourselves. That was given to us. Now, maybe we've cultivated it, but oftentimes we've been cultivating it through opportunities given to us by the family that we were born into, special advantages maybe that we had, challenges that we, you know, process, like all of these things, energy, ability, passion, determination, talent, giftedness, everything you've used to create whatever your crop happens to be, I mean, when you get right down to it, you've been using what you've been given. I've been using what I've been given. So then here's what we can't do. We can't go, well, then it's all mine. I can ignore whatever God has to say about it. I can ignore the needs of other people. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can, no. Jesus says the land of a certain rich man produced plentifully. And he's not saying, you know, that the guy didn't take the seed and put it in the ground and water the ground. He's saying he didn't create the seed. He didn't create the ground. He didn't create the water. He worked with what he was given. And even though he produced a crop, or the land did, that was more than he needed, more than his family needed, and probably enough to feed his old village, he thought that he had produced it. Therefore, he thought that he owned it, and therefore he thought he can do whatever he wants with it. And so he takes counsel. He's like, what am I going to do with this great abundance? But he takes counsel only with himself. It says he thought to himself. Now listen to the personal pronouns. 
What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then after consulting only with himself, he came to a conclusion. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat and drink and be merry. And what makes this so penetrating is, as I said at the beginning, we want to be him. We're like, how did you do this? This is amazing. I, I, I want to, I want to know if he's written a book. What would we call this man? We call him successful. We call him wise. You know, we'd label him as, I'm like, you know, he's my hero or he's my idol. What does God call him? God said to him, Jesus says, fool. Why does he call him a fool? Because he's a shrewd businessman? No. Because he's a hard worker? No. Okay, so, um, I, you know, I don't know. I, he made a solid investment plan. Is that foolish? No, it's, it's great. It's wise. Does he call him a fool, Tom, because he doesn't give all of his money to the church or give it all to some parachurch organization or give it all to the poor? Is that, is that it? He just didn't give it all away, therefore he's a fool? No, that, that has nothing to do with it. God calls him a fool because he's trusting in money as opposed to God for two things that only God can give, significance and security. And so God said to him, fool, and then he says this very night, you're, this night your very soul is required of you, for that too is a gift on loan from God. And the things that you have prepared for yourself in this life only with no thought about God and no thought about anyone else and certainly no thought of eternity, whose will they be? And then Jesus gives us the punchline. He says, so is the one who lays up for himself Treasure, okay, where? In this life and is not also rich toward God in this life. And then to encourage us to be rich toward God in this life, Jesus reminds us of who we are through faith in him. It's an identity thing. He's like, you know that, you know, through faith in me, like you're a son or daughter of God and that that is your value. Yeah, there's a price attached to it. And it's not 10 million or 20 or 50 or 150 or 500 or 500 billion. He's like, make it trillions. It doesn't matter. I have, I, God, placed an infinite price on you. And you know that because I have given the infinitely valuable life of my son that I might have you. You want to know how valuable you are? There it is. And there's no greater appraiser than the Lord. Jesus says to his disciples, look, guys, God is your father. You are his child. Therein lies your significance. And by the way, therein lies your security. He continues and he says to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and not even about the most fundamental things that you need, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. So food and clothing. Why? For the life is more than food. In the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, the most common of birds. Like when you go bird watching, are you looking for ravens? You're like, now get the raven out of the way. I'm trying to see that other bird. Like the raven since ancient times has been the image of death. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They don't even work. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I feel certain we can take hours off. 
If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies of the field, these these flowers that grow in the wild, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, they don't work. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven because it's dried up and dead and gone, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to everybody who does not have God as their father. He's saying everybody who does not share your particular identity through faith in Christ. He says all of those guys seek after those things, and your father knows that you need them, so why are you worried? Instead, here's what to seek. Here's what to chase after. He says seek his kingdom. And this other stuff, okay, that will be added to you. And then he changes the image from a father to a shepherd. And he says, fear not, little flock, which is, you know, something we would do. Like, wait a minute, so I'm going to take this and I'm going to do this with it? That makes me afraid. Why? Because this is my security. This is this is my identity. This this is my significance. He's like, yeah, that's why you need to give it away. We're going to need to break that addiction. He says, fear not, little flock. You're a child of God. You're a shepherd, or you're a sheep, rather, of the good shepherd. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So then in the security that is yours as a child of God and as a sheep of the good shepherd, you're free to do things like sell your possessions and give to the needy. And when you do, then what will happen? He says, then through your generosity in this life, you will also provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure where in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches like Happens in this life, although they'll meet my dog. And no moth destroys. Just things degrade in this world. It's the way that it works. And that will be forever yours. So unlike the wealth of this world, which we will 100% leave behind at the end of this life. He says, for where your treasure is, meaning down here on earth or up there in heaven. Okay, well, there will your heart be also. So following Jesus means learning how to trust in God and not in money, not in wealth for your significance and and for your security. And here's how you know you're doing that, by what you do with your money. It's honestly, you can count it. It is as simple as that. Are you tearing down barns and building bigger ones? Or are you being generous as the Lord commands, frankly, uh, and in mercy to other people? So I was having a conversation with a friend of mine kind of toward the end of last year. It's probably like November, so that year was coming to an end, and he was making his plans for generosity. And, uh, and if, you, if you were a part of the conversation, uh, well, he wouldn't have said it if you were a part of the conversation, but if you understood the conversation, you would know that this was a very natural, organic part of the conversation. There's no bragging or anything like that intended or implied in this particular statement. Um, but this is a really unique person. He's uniquely capable, uniquely gifted. He's literally, like, and this is not an exaggeration, uh, he's arguably the best in the whole world at what he does professionally. For real. Like, I am not the best on my block, okay, in anything I do. Period. Doesn't matter. Nothing. Not the best on my block. And he said to me, he said, you know, this year, uh, my wife and I have made a plan uh, we're going to give away 60% of our gross annual income. Six zero. That's not 6%, which, by the way, is 4% less than the Lord commands as a minimum. As a minimum. 
60%. I was floored. I've never heard that come out of the mouth of somebody I actually know. Like I went to a generous giving conference years ago up in Atlanta. It was really, really inspiring. It was a pretty amazing experience. And so, for example, one of the speakers got up and he's created this company that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said, you know, early on, like at the beginning part of our company, my wife and I decided this would be our salary and it would never be more than this and that this would be enough for us. And they have given hundreds of millions of dollars away above what they set for themselves. Pretty amazing. But I don't know that guy. I do know this guy. And I, I was blown away. 60%. So what does that tell you? I think it tells you, first of all, that, all right, his safety, his security, his significance is not found in what he has. If it was, he'd be tearing down his barns, he'd be building bigger ones, and then after that he'd tear those down and build bigger ones. It just it would never stop until eventually he was done. But I think the other thing that it does is it tells you that he takes seriously, like seriously enough to make a plan for this, the words of Christ when he comes to me and he comes to you and anybody else who will by faith listen, and that's the only way you get this. If there's no heaven in which you're storing up treasure and you're going to have it for forever for you, this is ridiculous. It's ludicrous. But it's not ludicrous to him. He takes seriously the words of Jesus when Jesus comes and says, hey, listen, the way that you use it here will impact your ability for forever to use it there. And I can't explain how all that stuff works. I just know those are the words of the Lord. So I'm going to ask you some questions here at the end, and it's really just meant to give you the opportunity to kind of self-diagnose. You know, you and the Lord, let the Spirit speak to you. Uh, the first question is just a general question. It's, a, have you given your heart to Jesus? Have you come to him with a trembling hand, with your heart, which represents your all, it represents everything, all you are, all you have, recognizing his beauty and surpassing value and saying, my goodness, you give me the privilege of giving this to you and you'll use me? And this is my significance and this is my security and this is my healing and forgiveness and hope and joy here. Have you done that? Because that's the starting place all the way across the board. But then just some diagnostic questions. As your wealth has increased, if it's increased, as your wealth has increased, have you become more or less self-centered? Go back to the studies. You know, like, ah, maybe I am that person. You know, like, has there been a corrosive effect, in other words? As your wealth has increased, have you become more or less sensitive to and responsive to the needs of others? It's easy to become jaded, particularly as you become wealthy and then people get to know that you're wealthy and then it feel like every conversation you have, you're really just having because somebody wants something from you as opposed to just wants to be your friend. So it happens. As your wealth has increased, have you given a greater or lesser, not amount, but percentage of it away? Fifth question, are you content with what you have or have you made it your goal to become the rich man in the story? And if you're chasing more and then more and then after that more, what are you hoping to gain from it? What's the end goal of the chase? What are you sacrificing in the meantime? And then last question, when you die, will you have more treasure in heaven than you leave behind on earth? Because you have a father who says, look, first of all, it's all mine. You've done a nice job working with what I've given you, but I've even given you the ability to work with what I've given you. So really, it's all mine. If you'll use it as I, as I lead, if you'll use it as I command, if you'll put it at my disposal, 
all right, you're going to store up for yourself in a place that is a forever place. Think of the distance between forever and this life. Oh my. I will reward you there. And where the money hits or the rubber hits the road is, okay, do we do it? Do we do it? Let me pray. Lord, we, we come to you this morning and, um, and God, we just pray for you. Lord, would you come and by your spirit, would you, would you fill us? Would you come and would you give us faith? Faith is a gift. God, we need the gift of faith, particularly in regard to this. Come and give us faith in who we are in you and what you've done for us. Lord, in the identity that is ours as a free gift as a result of the performance of Jesus, which is a perfect performance. It's unfailing and you are unfailing. And speak to us in this moment about what that means. Lord, overwhelm us with the value that you have placed on us in claiming us for yourself and sacrificing your son that you might have us. Oh my goodness, we are of infinite value. Give us faith to somehow believe that. Let us receive your appraisal and let us rest in it. Are we not of more value to you than the ravens? and the wildflowers that grow and then die overnight. Lord, impress upon us the value that you place on us, the delight that because of Christ you have in us, and the safety and the security of being your child. And then give us the liberating joy of being released from the tyrant of the need for more from the never-ending slavery of chasing it and then getting it and it's not enough, from the unsatisfying experience of, of getting where we thought we needed to be to be a somebody and discovering that that's not what makes us a somebody. Free us from these things and let us have the joy of laying our lives before you, our talents, our gifts, our, our money, whatever, placing it at your disposal and watching you go to work with it as we in the security of who we are free are free to give it away are free to use it as you dispense and as you see fit and yes lord we look to heaven that's our eternal home that's the place we're traveling to we're just passing through here and it's a short run thank you that there we find christ the greatest treasure and all of the blessings that you in mercy and in grace alone really grant to us for whatever life you empower us to lead here. So we look to that and we praise you for it. Speak, Lord, for we are your servants. Give us faith now by which to listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.